Religious freedom isn't just for believers. What religious freedom does is preserve a space where people can make choices. I mean, these are issues that hit at the heart of everyone, right? Identity, belief, meaning. People have deep differences over these issues. Welcome to the Why Magazine podcast, bringing you ideas, stories, and voices from Brigham Young University. This is Whitney Archibald, and today we have the privilege of speaking with Professor Elizabeth Clark about what religious freedom really is, why it matters, and what we can do to stand up for it. Professor Clark is the Associate Director of the International Center for Law and Religious Studies at BYU and the lead organizer for the annual International Law and Religion Symposium, which will be happening in just a couple of weeks. This year is the 30th year of the event. Every October, we bring about 100 government leaders, religious leaders, civic leaders, academics, intergovernmental organization leaders here to Provo for three and a half days just to talk about religious freedom. And it's fascinating discussions. You know, this year we have the Grand Imam from the National Mosque in Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim country in the world. We have the EU's point person, their special envoy on religious freedom issues, right? You get to bring people like that, as well as people from smaller countries that, you know, struggle sometimes with these issues, are trying to transition into more open governments. And this gives them a chance to be able to learn and share their concerns and be able to engage and build networks. If you want to hear from some of these fascinating speakers, many of the sessions will be streaming live from the website of the Center of Law and Religion during the symposium on October 1st through 3rd, and others will be available after the event. We'll include a link in the show notes. But now let's get into our conversation with Elizabeth Clark. I started by asking her what got her interested in studying religious freedom in the first place. You know, I was interested in it before I knew what religious freedom was as a topic. I was a Russian major in college. I spent some time in the Soviet Union, served as a missionary in the Czech Republic. It was there shortly after it all opened. And, you know, seeing and getting to know people, and then in the Soviet Union, being there, where there are restrictions on what you can do and what you can say and proselyting and establishing churches, it makes it very real. And if religion is something that's important to you, being in a place like that hits home really fast. So. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's, yeah, especially if it's something that you've taken for granted all your life, that mm-hmm. religious freedom is at least ostensibly protected by your constitution, yeah. that must be a shock. It is, you know, but it was a great experience. I remember being in the Soviet Union. I was there right about the time it all fell apart. And I was in Kiev, which is, of course, now Ukraine, but then it was Russian-speaking part of Soviet Union. And I was there with the first four missionaries and first four members when I came to the city. And it's just, I mean, they couldn't proselyte, they couldn't wear their name tags, all these sorts of things. But things were just opening up just enough that they could be there. And so that was incredibly exciting. That is, definitely. But I would like to talk about religious freedom as a principle, starting with what religious freedom means as an individual, and then widening our circle out to the world. No, that's great, because so often people think of religious freedom and their mind stops at the individual level, right? This is the people who say, 
don't we already have religious freedom? Why do we even need to be thinking about it? Uh-huh. Right? They're thinking about the very narrow individual definition is I can choose my faith. I can change my faith. I can worship at home or by myself, right? And those are core rights and they should be protected everywhere. But religious freedom involves more than just sort of what you do in your home or even how you talk to people around you about your faith, right? It includes a family level of being able to teach your children. I remember seeing in Czechoslovakia people who couldn't. Really? People who joined the church. Oh, yeah. The, the missionaries had been there before and after World War II for a while. And so there were some well-established families that just continued trying to practice on their own under communism for 40 years. Wow. And yet yeah, amazing stories. But, you know, some of them, a couple who went on to be the temple president and matron in East Germany, couldn't teach their children about their beliefs because they were afraid that if their kids knew their kids would be under pressure at school to try and turn them in. Wow. And they didn't want to put their kids in that position. And so they had to hide it from them. I mean, that, I don't know, brings it home, doesn't it? Yes, it's hard to even fathom. It really is. So you've got individual rights, you've got family rights. Then you have rights just with other people. You have the right to share your beliefs. You have the right to um, meet together, to gather for worship or gather in public or in private. And then you have organizational rights. You have the right to form an organization. You know, it seems sort of mundane. Like, of course, what do you do? You go to the government, you fill out a little form, and there you exist. But in so many parts of the world, that's used as a gatekeeping function. Oh. So they won't let you exist. They won't let you have any legal existence. And then the laws prevent anyone who doesn't have legal existence from doing anything, even worshiping in your own home. So, wow. I mean, this ends up being actually a really important right that you don't think of as, oh, it's technical legal stuff. And then the right, once you have an organization, for that organization to define its own doctrine, pick its own teachers. I mean, that was another thing under the communists and still happens under China. The government gets to pick who the leaders of religion are, not the religious bodies. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, being able to have a BYU, I mean, this is controversial in some parts of the world. And then, and then globally, how does religious freedom affect how countries interact with each other? Um, you know, there's a lot of international norms and treaties that allow countries to comment on each other's religious freedom and support each other. Mm. The U.S. makes a big deal of this, has an annual report on every country in the world. Um, and so... At its best, this kind of process can be a way of countries lifting each other up, trying to help support minorities in other countries. Um, But, I mean, religious freedom has so many benefits as well. So much empirical research about the value of religion and religious freedom, right? People who have religious beliefs or attend regularly, have higher levels of well-being, of physical health, of mental health. Their youth have better educational outcomes, less likely to commit crime, have more stable marriages. Then as a community, right, it brings social capital. Religious communities are more likely to encourage people to be generous, even to non-religious causes. Religious people give more than non-religious people. You know, this whole idea of charitable giving, you don't even think about it, but religious communities in the United States, for example, give more foreign assistance than the Gates Foundation. Wow. I mean, you put them all together and there's a lot of small 
grassroots things going on, but religious freedom and religion have been associated with be able to have uh, greater levels of peace, greater educational attainment for women, more stable democracies. I mean, it's just fascinating, fascinating how much is tied into religiosity and the ability to choose it freely. Wow. It's exciting to see. And I think, you know, when we understand it better, then it's easier to advocate in the political world for protections for religion. It's not what they call special pleading. It's not me asking for it for my faith, but I've seen even people who aren't religious advocate for religious freedom because you can see the value it brings to the country. Right. Um, yeah, that's super important. Um, can we, we talk more about this annual symposium? Since you've been doing it for so many years, what have been some of the memorable moments at these conferences? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> While they're here, we, we take them to a session of general conference oh. because these are all people who do religion professionally. And when they go to conferences, there's often side events. And wherever you go, they're always about religion because that's what you study. Right. And so here they're curious to know the church. And so we introduce them to you know, the church a little bit and take them to a session of general conference. And I remember we were there when they dedicated the conference center. Oh. And there were lines all the way around Temple Square, people lining up to be able to get into the next session. Yeah. Um, and we had someone come from a country that was not very affluent country. Right. And he told me, he told me later, he said, in my country, people line up for bread. Wow. But here people line up to worship. I never knew how important this was. And, you know, to see people engaged in that way, to hear people share experiences they have of, you know, they're coming from a community that's been persecuted in part of the world or speaking up for a community that's been persecuted. People who've put their lives at risk sometimes by the stands they take and being willing to do that. It, it just inspires me. Yes. How cool to just associate with these leaders that have these priorities. That's really cool. So, from your research and your experience and probably your interactions with these leaders, what would you say are the greatest risks to religious freedom in our world mm -hmm. today? You know, there's a couple. Um, right now, I'd probably put my finger and say three of them. Okay. One is um, like populist nationalism. Okay. There's a brand of this going throughout the world and it tends to sort of prioritize its own country first and prioritize whatever the dominant religion is in their own country. And in many countries, that means to the exclusion of minorities, that we can define ourselves by defining minorities as the other, as pushing them out of our society, making them feel unwelcome. Right. And then making laws that are exclusionary. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you see this in Hungary, you see this in India, you see this in Turkey, you see it here in the US. I mean, wherever you go, you can see this is just a, a really sad thread that's come through a lot of, of politics in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. So that's one. Another one is security concerns. People who are worried about terrorism often associate, say, Islam with terrorism. Although in other parts of the world, it's other issues too, right? I mean, there were radical Buddhist terrorists 
in um, Sri Lanka and Myanmar or Christian terrorists in Ireland for quite a while with the IRA. Right. So in countries like this, the, the impulse then is to say, well, we can be safe by pushing minorities out of public space, regulating them out of existence. But that only worsens religious freedom and worsens the security and stability of the country. Ultimately. Yes. So you have those, and then you also have sort of increasing secularism, bureaucracies, people who just don't really care about religion. And so they don't bother to make exceptions for religion. It's not even necessarily opposed to religion, but you know, with decreasing amounts of religiosity in the U S and Europe in particular, Australia, New Zealand, you see a less concern for the needs of religious communities. And what argument would you give to somebody who doesn't personally care much about religion, doesn't see its benefit? There's, there is a, a, an important argument. Religious freedom isn't just for believers, right? What religious freedom does is preserve a space where people can make choices. Religious freedom benefits atheists and agnostics too, because there's some country where they're persecuted. The point is just that people have a space where they can make these choices. And it, it goes to something very deep within us that we want to be able to respond to our sense of sacred, our sense of reality. And to be able to do that is universal, really. Well, and it seems like it, it um, often extends to other beliefs besides religious beliefs. Is that yes. correct? It, absolutely. Religious rights tend to come bundled with other rights. So you find countries that protect freedom of religion will also likely protect freedom of speech and protect other sort of core civil rights, right to a trial, right to association. It was interesting, I was speaking to an association of international journalists and listening to their conference, and they were talking about all the ways they were persecuted in some countries. And I kept thinking when I heard them, I thought that lines up exactly with how religious believers are treated in the same country, every single one. Yeah. And it's, you know, an impulse of the government to have excessive control or to be afraid of rivals because religion in many cases is seen as a political rival. Right. Um, and so that impulse doesn't stop with religion. Yeah. I mean, this is this is such a human impulse. We've been seeing it since biblical times. Yes, since no, it goes way back. I mean, and there's some early highlights of people who did try to have some levels of religion in an ancient world, but it was very much a sense of we're unified, and that means you have to believe what we want you to believe. Yeah, and if you don't, then you're not part of the kingdom. You don't have allegiance to the king. You don't worship the same gods. We can't trust you. Yeah. So what suggestions do you have for those of us who aren't involved in the symposium, aren't meeting with world leaders about religious freedom? What can we do to help the cause? So some of it is just getting involved in your community, in the schools or in civic organizations, getting to know people of other faiths, because you can't stand up for people of other faiths if you don't know what their concerns are. Right. And once you get to know them, they're going to tell you what bothers them and what worries them. You know, a local Jewish rabbi tell you he's worried about security because of shootings and vandalism of, of synagogues around the country. Or you get to a local Muslim community and they may feel ostracized. 
and, and you know, want support to stand for them when, when there's some kind of threatening or hostile things happening in the public. And part of it is being prayerful about what you can do, because not everyone, it's not the right time in their life to do everything. One thing I encourage people to do is do whatever it is you are currently doing, but think of a way to do it interfaith. You know, if you're a choir director, why not organize an interfaith choir? If you're a young women's president, why not organize an activity for young women and young men, maybe with the youth from another religious community? It's a great way to sort of broaden your horizons and be able to you know, find the needs of other people and speak for them. Oh, those are great suggestions. What an interesting field of study. And I'm so grateful to people like you who are making this a priority and creating these forums so that we can discuss this with countries all over the world. And I'm sure you're very busy oh. preparing for this next one right now. <laughs> it, it, it's a little crazy, but it's exciting. So, and I, I'm so grateful to be part of this. It really, it's, it's an enormous blessing. Thank you for listening to the Y Magazine podcast. For a Q&A with David Moore, Dean of the J. Reuben Clark Law School about religious freedom, check out the article Liberty for All in the Fall 2023 issue of Y Magazine. This episode was produced by me, Whitney Archibald, with executive producer Denya Palmer. Mixing, mastering, and original music by Jarrett Davis.